pretty impressive. Hi, I think about a handful of more people could actually sit on the stage if they don't mind not having a chair. As you can see, you are the largest class ever admitted to Princeton University. <laughs> the loudest. Okay, shall we start? Anybody who's still searching for a seat? There's a few odd ones I can see, but not many. So, welcome to the Freshman Assembly for the class of 2009. My name is Claire Fowler, and I'm the Associate Dean of the College for Freshmen and Sophomores, and I'm the person who sends you all the orientation stuff. Um, the Freshman Assembly is a very special occasion in Orientation Week, I think, because it marks the beginning of your intellectual life at Princeton, and you get to share this moment with your entire class instead of just the 20 people in your seminar with you. The design of the Freshman Assembly is intended to prefigure the structure of many of the classes you'll take at Princeton, where you have a reading assignment, you then listen to a lecture, and then you, fo you follow that by a discussion of students. Can everybody turn their cell phones off? Because I'm hearing beeps all over the place. Okay. After tonight's lecture, you will go back to your residential colleges and share your thoughts and ideas about this lecture with your peers. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, Kwame Antonia Pia, who is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Philosophy and the University Center for Human Values. Few people could be more qualified to engage the subject of cosmopolitanism than Professor Apia. Born in London, he was raised in Ghana and educated at Cambridge University in England, where he took both BA and PhD degrees in philosophy. Since Cambridge, he has taught at Yale, Cornell, Duke, and more recently Harvard before coming to Princeton. He's also lectured at many other institutions in the United States, Germany, Ghana, Paris, and South Africa. He speaks English, French, German, reads Latin, and speaks the language of the Ashanti region of Ghana. Professor Apir is also an intellectual polyglot, an internationally renowned scholar of moral and political philosophy and of African and of African American studies. Professor Apir has written extensively on issues of personal and political identity, multiculturalism and nationalism. He's published three novels, works of short fiction, and a volume of poetry, in addition to his many scholarly publications and review articles. I couldn't possibly do justice here to everything he's published. I think I couldn't believe it when 35 pages came out of my printer when I printed a CV. But I do want to mention tonight some of the books that you might want to look for after tonight's lecture. In My Father's House, Africa and the Philosophy of Culture was published by Oxford University Press in 1992. And this is a wide-ranging collection of essays, some autobiographical, exploring African identity. And it established Professor Appear as one of the major contributors to contemporary African studies. In 1996, he took, the, he took on the question of race and identity, co-authoring with Amy Gutman, former provost of Princeton and now the president of Penn, um, the book is called Color Conscious, The Political Morality of Race. Color Conscious won the annual book award of the North American Society for Social Philosophy, 
the Ralph J. Buncher Award of the American Political Science Association and the Gustavus Myers Award for the Study of Human Rights. In 1997, he co-edited co with former Harvard colleague Henry Louis Gates, Jr., the Dictionary of Global Culture, and they also edited uh, Microsoft and Carter's Africana CD-ROM Encyclopedia. In 2004, Oxford University Press published his Introduction to Contemporary Philosophy, entitled Thinking It Through. In January 2005, Princeton University Press published The Ethics of Identity and next year, Norton will publish Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in the World of Strangers. Professor Appiah's work consistently, consistently asks those big questions that we must all confront. How do we think of ourselves in relation to our past and to our community? What does it mean to make a life of our own while being responsive to the needs of others? What does it mean to be a citizen of the world? All of us in this theater tonight are citizens of a university whose motto is in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. It is perhaps our responsibility to engage with questions of personal, national, and global identity and the obligations that follow. These are complex issues, and we are indeed fortunate this evening to have as our guide the man whom the French news magazine Le Nouvel Observateur last year named as one of the top 25 great public philosophers in the world today. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Professor Anthony Appiah, who will deliver tonight's lecture. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be the 217th person to welcome you to Princeton. Uh, and I'm sure you'll have a wonderful time here. And it's a privilege for me to have been asked uh, to talk to you uh, tonight. Um, cosmopolitanism dates, as every Princeton freshman knows, to the cynics of the fourth century BC, who first coined the expression cosmopolitas, citizen of the cosmos of the world. Their creed was taken up and elaborated by the Stoics, beginning in the third century BC, and that fact was of critical importance in its subsequent intellectual history. For the Stoicism of the Romans, Cicero, Seneca, Epictetus, and the, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius proved congenial to many Christian intellectuals once Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. It's profoundly ironic that though Marcus Aurelius sought to suppress the new Christian sect, his extraordinary personal meditations, a philosophical diary written in the second century AD, as he battled to save the Roman Empire from barbarian invaders, has attracted Christian readers for nearly 2,000 years. Part of its appeal, I think, has always been the way in which the Stoic Emperor's cosmopolitan conviction of the oneness of humanity echoes St. Paul's insistence that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Cosmopolitan's later career was also not without distinction. It underwrote some of the great moral achievements of the Enlightenment, including the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and Immanuel Kant's work proposing a League of Nations, which is arguably the intellectual origin of the United Nations. In a 1788 essay in his journal, the Deutsche Merkur, Christoph Martin Wieland, once called the German Voltaire, 
wrote in a characteristic expression of the ideal, cosmopolitans regard all the peoples of the earth as many branches of a single family and the universe as a state of which they, with innumerable other rational beings, are citizens, promoting together under the general laws of nature the perfection of the whole, which each in his own fashion, while each in his own fashion, is busy about his own well-being. And Voltaire himself, who nobody, I'm afraid, ever called the French Vieland, spoke eloquently of the obligation to understand those with whom we share the planet, linking that need explicitly with our global economic interdependence. Fed by the products of their soil, Voltaire wrote, dressed in their fabrics, amused by games they invented, instructed even by their ancient moral fables, why would we neglect to understand the mind of these nations, among whom our European traders have traveled ever since they could find a way to get to them? There are two strands that intertwine in the notion of cosmopolitanism. One is the idea that we have obligations to others, obligations that stretch beyond those with whom we are related by ties of family or even the more formal ties of shared citizenship. The other is that we take seriously the value not just of human life, but of particular human lives, which means taking an interest in the practices and beliefs that lend them significance. People are different, the cosmopolitan knows, and there's much to learn from our differences. Because there are so many human possibilities worth exploring, we don't expect, we don't desire that every person or every society should converge on a single mode of life. Whatever our obligations are to others or theirs to us, they often have the right to go their own way. Now, as we'll see, there are times when these two ideals, on the one hand, universal concern, and on the other hand, respect for legitimate difference, can clash. So that there's a sense in which cosmopolitanism is the name not of a solution, but of a challenge. But still, we can see how cosmopolitans aim to meet that challenge. They will accept that our obligations have a universal reach to all human beings, while insisting that the universality they endorse does not require everyone to become the same. If I may propose a slogan, cosmopolitanism involves universality plus difference. And that means, as I want to argue this evening, that cosmopolitans have two kinds of enemies. Those who deny the legitimacy of universality and those who deny the legitimacy of difference. To see why someone might object on the grounds that universality is too much to demand, ask yourself this simple question. How far can we take the idea of world citizenship? Are we really supposed to abjure all local allegiances in the name of humanity, that vast abstraction? Some of the proponents of cosmopolitanism were pleased to think so and they make easy targets of ridicule. A lover of his kind, but a hater of his kindred, Edmund Burke said about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, while being famously cosmopolitan, handed each of his five children to an orphanage. Yet the impartialist version of the cosmopolitan creed has continued to hold a kind of steely fascination. Virginia Woolf once exhorted uh, freedom from what she called unreal loyalties to nation, sex, school, neighborhood, and so on. Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, in the same spirit, invade against what he called the stupidity of patriotism. To destroy war, destroy patriotism, he said in an 1896 essay, a couple of decades before the Tsar was stepped away 
by a revolution in the name of the international working class. Some contemporary philosophers have similarly urged that the boundaries of nations are morally irrelevant, accidents of history with no claim on our conscience. But if there are friends of cosmopolitanism, like those who make me nervous, I'm happy to be opposed to cosmopolitan's noisiest enemies. Both Hitler and Stalin, who agreed about little else, save that murder is the first instrument of politics, launched regular invectives against rootless cosmopolitans. And while for both, anti-cosmopolitanism was often just a euphemism for their anti-Semitism, they were right to see cosmopolitanism as an enemy. For they both required a kind of loyalty to one portion of humanity, a nation, a class, that ruled out loyalty to all of humanity. And the one thought that cosmopolitans share and can never abandon is that no local loyalty can ever justify forgetting that each human being has responsibilities to every other. But fortunately, we don't need to take sides, either with the nationalist who abandons all foreigners or with the hardcore cosmopolitan who regards her friends and fellow citizens with an icy impartiality. One kind of cosmopolitanism, then, rejects the demand for universality. I believe that we answer that objection when we show that it's less demanding than the nationalists fear. But there's another kind of enemy that we need to respond to. These objectors share the cosmopolitan belief in universality, but they don't care, as cosmopolitans do, for difference. I want today to discuss just one such breed of counter-cosmopolitan, though there are many. And let me offer first a sketch of their lives and their beliefs. They believe in human dignity across the nations, and they live their creed. They share their ideals with people in many countries, speaking many languages. As thoroughgoing globalists, they make full use of the World Wide Web. This band of brothers and sisters resists the crass consumerism of modern Western society and its growing influence in the rest of the world. But they also resist the temptation of the narrow nationalisms of the countries where they were born. They would never go to war for a country, but they will enlist in a campaign against any nation that gets in the way of universal justice. They oppose them because they get in the way of the one thing that matters, building a community of enlightened men and women across the world. That's one reason why they also reject traditional religious authorities. Not that they are anti-religious, far from it, but their faith is clear and simple and direct. Sometimes they agonize in their discussions about whether they can reverse the world's evils or whether their struggle is hopeless. But mostly, they soldier on in their efforts to make the world a better place. These people are not the secret heirs of the cynic cosmopolitans, whose cause, too, was global, because they, too, had no time for the local community and the customary. The community these comrades are building is not a polis. They call it the Ummah, the community of the faithful, and it's open to any who share their faith. They are young, global Muslim fundamentalists, they are the recruiting grounds for Al-Qaeda. On September 11th, this solemn anniversary, it seems particularly important to think about these particular counter-cosmopolitans. Though some of them are Europeans and Americans, the division they make between faithful and infidel is not one most Europeans or Americans would recognize. Many people, one would normally say, were Muslims because they call themselves Muslims, declare that God is one and Muhammad is prophet, 
pray daily to Mecca, give charity, make the Hajj, are on the outside of their community in urgent need, they think, of being returned to the true faith. The Ummah's new globalists consider that they have returned to the fundamentals of Islam. Much of what passes for Islam in the world, much of what has passed as Islam for centuries, even for a millennium, they think is a sham. As the French scholar Olivier Roy writes in his superb account of the phenomenon in his book, Globalized Islam, of course, by definition, Islam is universal. But after the time of the Prophet and his companions, the Salaf, it has always been embedded in given cultures. These cultures seem now a mere product of history and the result of many influences and idiosyncrasies. For fundamentalists, as also for some liberals, there is nothing in these cultures to be proud of because they have altered the pristine message of Islam. Globalization is a good opportunity to dissociate Islam from any given culture and to provide a model that could work beyond any culture. That's the end of the quote. In their rejection of traditional religious and authorities and their reliance on their own interpretations of the Quran and the traditions of their faith, they are, in many ways, of course, like Christian fundamentalists in the United States. They, too, think that churches and scholars often get between the Bible and the faithful and that Holy Scripture can speak very well for itself. The new Muslim fundamentalists, neo-fundamentalists, Roy calls them, typically communicate in English because many of them grew up in parts of the world, including Europe and North America, where Arabic isn't spoken much. And this global language, English, which is understood by many educated Muslims in Egypt, Pakistan, or Malaysia, is the one they have in common. So they share, with many Christian fundamentalists, their ignorance of the original language of the scriptures that they are interpreting. Most Islamic theory about relations between Muslims and non-Muslims was developed over the centuries in Muslim countries to deal with non-Muslim minorities. But a third of the world's Muslims now live in countries that have non-Muslim majorities. Indeed, as Olivier Rice has elegantly demonstrates, globalized Islam is in part a response to the new experience of Muslims as minorities. They can be the children of Algerian immigrants in France, or of Bengali and Pakistani immigrants in England. They may be from Turkey, or Saudi Arabia, or Sudan, or Zanzibar, or Malaysia. Islam for them is fundamentally a faith, a set of practices, prayer and fasting, charity, the Hajj, but also eating halal meat and avoiding alcohol, and a commitment to certain values like cleanliness and modesty in daily life. Such neo-fundamentalists may speak of Muslim culture, but they largely reject the culture within which, the religion they, uh, which their religion was embedded in the places their Muslim parents and grandparents came from. Their culture, that culture, the culture of Egypt or Zanzibar or Pakistan, is treated skeptically, Roy says, as a mere product of history in his phrase. They've taken a religion that came with a form of life and thrown away the form of life. They have no need of national loyalties or cultural traditions. Now, I should insist that the vast majority of these mostly young neo-fundamentalists are not going to blow anybody up. So they shouldn't be confused with other Muslims, those other Muslims, who Roy calls the radical neo-fundamentalists, who want to turn jihad, interpreted as literal warfare against the West, into a kind of sixth pillar of Islam. But there are fundamentalists whose aversion to terrorism and violence is as profound as bin Laden's 
dedication to it. Whether to endorse the use of violence is a political decision, even if it's to be justified in religious terms. And indeed, Roy has argued that the failure of jihad, the failure of Osama bin Laden, may have turned many fundamentalists back to dawah, to preaching and precept, exhortation and example, as the right way to bring outsiders in and apostates back to the faith. What's happening within Islam, especially outside the Muslim countries, is parallel to similar phenomena, as I said, that are going on among the Christians next door. We see, as Roy observes, the same quest for a universal community beyond cultures and nations, and in both cases, a move towards the individualization of religion. And this newly individualized Islam is, like Catholic or Protestant versions of fundamentalism, perfectly consistent with political and social integration as a minority within the framework of a democratic republic that allows freedom of religion. What distinguishes the neo-fundamentalists, violent or not, is that they exemplify the possibility of a kind of universal ethics that inverts the possibilities in the picture of cosmopolitan that I've been suggesting. Universalism without toleration, without difference, it's clear, turns easily to murder. That's one lesson we can learn from the sad history of Christian religious warfare in Europe. The universalist principle, un roi, une foi, une loi, one king, one faith, one law, underlay the French wars of religion that bloodied the four decades before the Edict of Nantes in 1598, in which Henri Quatre of France finally granted to the Protestants in his realm the right to practice their religion. In the Thirty Years' War, which ravaged Central Europe until 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, Protestant and Catholic princes from Austria to Sweden struggled with one another, and hundreds of thousands of Germans died in battle. Millions starved or died of disease as roaming armies pillaged the countryside. In the English Civil War between 1639 and 1651, which pitted Protestant armies against the forces of a Catholic king, perhaps as many as 10% of the inhabitants of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland died in warfare for the disease and starvation that came in the aftermath of battle. In all these conflicts, issues beyond sectarian doctrine were always no doubt at stake. But many Enlightenment liberals drew the conclusion that insisting on one vision of universal truth could only lead the world back to the bloodbaths. It was a lesson drawn equally by many in the West who railed against the Catholic Inquisition. Again, cruelty conducted, as so often, in the name of moral cleansing, murder in the name of universal truth. Intolerance of religious difference in the Christian world is not, I should hasten to say, course, only a thing of the past. Many American Christians believe that atheists, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and the rest will go to hell unless they accept Jesus Christ. There are Protestants who think that about other Protestants. There are people who think it about Catholics. And there are no doubt Catholics who think it about everybody else. This is a view that can perhaps be held with compassion, a view that will lead you to want to convert those whose eternal fate hang so precariously in the balance, but it's not one that necessarily leads to respect for those who are living in error. Among our Christian fellow citizens, there are some, though not, I think, very many, who want to make the government and society more Christian by having the Ten Commandments in every courthouse, abortion and homosexuality prescribed, evolution off the biology syllabus. 
But that's usually about it. The centuries of massacre by Christian princes or the Holy Office are long gone. We don't have many fellow citizens who think that massacre would be a reasonable way to pursue the Christianization of America. Still, we should remember that there have been Christian terrorists in the United States, and that one of them, Eric Rudolph, has been convicted of leaving a large pipe bomb in a park in Atlanta during the 1996 Olympic Games, which killed a woman named Alice Hawthorne, injured more than 100 other people, and would, but for the prompt action of a security guard, have killed and injured many more. Attacking the Olympics is about as straightforward a way there is of declaring yourself an enemy, an enemy of cosmopolitan conversation across the nations. Now, Rudolph has also been convicted of killing an off-duty police officer at a clinic in Birmingham where abortions were sometimes performed and with bombing a lesbian bar in Atlanta. These are more than suggestions that he shares the aims, though not, of course, the methods, of the Christian right. As news reports suggest, what's especially troubling is the amount of support that Rudolph seems to have had in places like Murphy, North Carolina, where he was finally caught. Many of its residents openly identified with him during the police manhunt. Bumper stickers and T-shirts with the slogan, Run, Rudolph, Run, were printed and sold by local businesses. Rudolph's a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and he dedicated his life to fighting abortion. A young woman from Murphy, a mother of four, told the New York Times reporter, those are our values, these are our woods. I don't see what he did as a terrorist act. Now, I'm not equating these crimes to the multinational murder spree whose guiding spirit is Osama bin Laden. There's no question that he and various groups more or less loosely affiliated with him or inspired by him pose the greatest danger of terrorism against the United States, arguably in the world today. No doubt, too, that the popularity Osama enjoys among the counter-cosmopolitans makes him a far from marginal figure. But I think it's easier to remember that Osama bin Laden is not the typical Muslim when we recall that Eric Rudolph is not the typical Christian. They're not parallel in another way. So far as I'm aware, no large organized Christian terror work network is planning attacks on Muslim countries or institutions. There are many reasons for that, I think. One of them is surely that very few Christians see Islam as posing a threat to their way of life. Why many Muslims do feel that Christians are still engaged in a crusade against them is a complicated question. I'm inclined to agree with those who think that an important element in the psychological mix is a sense that Islam, which once led Christendom, um, just remember, as you study algebra, that that's an Arabic word because they invented it, has somehow fallen behind, a sense that produces an uncomfortable melange of resentment, anger, envy, and admiration. But to offer explanations for such counter-cosmopolitanism still doesn't address the conceptual challenge that it poses to those of us who do believe in moral universals, which is how, in principle, to distinguish between benign and malign forms of universalism. I mentioned tolerance, yet there are plenty of things that the heroes of radical Islam are ready to tolerate. They don't care if you eat kebabs or meatballs or gung pao chicken as long as the meat is halal. Your hijab can be made of silk or linen or viscose. On the other hand, there are limits to the tolerance of cosmopolitans. We will sometimes want to intervene in other places because what's going on there 
violates our fundamental principles so deeply, we too can see moral error. And when it's serious enough, genocide being the uncontroversial case, we won't stop just with talking to people. We'll want to intervene. Our toleration, in short, assumes that some things are intolerable. Then, as I said at the start, we cosmopolitans believe in universal truth too, though perhaps we're less certain than the counter-cosmopolitans that we've already got it all already. It's not skepticism about the idea of truth that guides us. It's realism about how hard the truth is to find. One truth we hold to, however, is that every human being has obligations to every other. Everybody matters. That's the central cosmopolitan idea, and it sharply limits the scope of our tolerance. To say what in principle distinguishes the cosmopolitan from the counter-cosmopolitan, we plainly need, therefore, to go beyond talk of truth and tolerance. One distinctively cosmopolitan uh, commitment is to pluralism. Cosmopolitans think that there are many values worth living by and that you cannot live by all of them. So we hope and expect that different people and different societies will embody and experiment with different values, though they all have to be values worth living by. Another aspect of cosmopolitanism is what philosophers call fallibilism. We have the sense that our own knowledge is imperfect and provisional and subject to revision in the face of new evidence, including new evidence from people in other societies. The neo-fundamentalist conception of global humour, by contrast, admits of local variations, but only in matters that don't matter. These counter-cosmopolitans, once more like many Christian fundamentalists, do think that there is just one right way for all human beings to live, and that all the differences must be in the details. Still, I should insist that the universalisms in the name of religion are hardly the only ones that invert the cosmopolitan creed. In the name of universal humanity, you can be the kind of Marxist, like Mao or Pol Pot, who wants to eradicate all religion on the grounds that it's all false, just as easily as you can be a grand inquisitor supervising an auto da fe. All of these men want everyone on their side so we can share their vision. Indeed, I am a trustworthy advisor to you, Osama bin Laden said in a 2002 message to the American people. I invite you to the happiness of this world and the hereafter and to escape your dry, miserable, materialistic life without soul. I invite you to Islam that calls to follow the path of Allah alone who has no partners path which calls for justice and forbids oppression and crimes. Join us, the counter-cosmopolitans say, and we will all be sisters and brothers. But each of them plans to trample on our differences, to trample us to death if necessary, if we won't join them. Their motto might be that sardonic German proverb, und willst du nicht mein Bruder sein, so schlage ich dir den Schädel ein. If you don't want to be my brother, I'll smash your skull in. <laughs> For the counter-cosmopolitans, universalism must issue in uniformity. The cosmopolitan may be happy to abide by the golden rule about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, but we cosmopolitans care if the others don't want to be done unto as I would be done unto. It's not necessarily the end of the matter, but it's something we think we need to take account of. 
Our understanding of toleration means interacting on terms of respect with those who see the world differently. We cosmopolitans think we might learn something even from people we disagree with. We think people, too, have a right to their own lives. In some of the pronunciamentos of radical Islam, you will find that such conversation across differences is exactly what is to be shunned. Here, for example, is a message from Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, a longtime associate of Osama bin Laden's, translated from a tape released on February 11, 2005, and circulated on the web by his admirers. The Sharia brought down by Allah is the Sharia which must be followed. In this matter, no person is able to stand in a position of waviness or oscillation. It is a matter that can only be received very seriously because he doesn't accept jokes. Either you're a believer in Allah, and then you have to abide by his laws, or you're a disbeliever in him, and then there is no use in discussing with you. The waviness with West, with, which Western secularism desires to spread, no proper mind which respects itself can accept, because Allah, if he's the ruler, then he has the right to rule. This is obvious, and there is no hesitation. And so it is that if you're a disbeliever in Allah, then logically there is no use in debating with you the details of his laws. The fear of conversation here is evidently propelled by a concern that exchanges with people of different views will lead the faithful astray. There's no curiosity at all about the ways of the disbeliever. All we are is embodiments of error. But of course, many Muslims, including many serious Muslim religious scholars, have debated the nature of Sharia, or Islamic religious law. Over the last two centuries, one can identify distinguished Islamic scholars who've engaged seriously with ideas from outside Islam. In the 19th century, Saeed Ahmad Khan in India and Muhammad Abdu in Egypt both sought to develop Muslim visions of modernity. More recently, Mahmoud uh, Muhammad Taha in Sudan, Tariq Ramadan in Europe, and Khalid Abu El-Fadl in the United States have all developed their views in dialogue with the non-Muslim world. Now, these Muslim thinkers are wildly different, but each of them challenges, and with a far more extensive grounding in the corpus of earlier Muslim scholarship than anything Bin Laden has said, the, fundamental, uh, the fundamentalist conceptions of Sharia. Uh, Ahmed Al-Tayyab, president of Al-Azhar, the world's oldest university, in fact, it's the oldest university in the world, in Cairo, has invited the Archbishop of Canterbury to speak from his pulpit. And he has said, God created diverse peoples. Had he wanted to create a single Ummah, he would have. But he chose to make them different until the day of resurrection. Every Muslim must fully understand this principle. A relationship based on conflict is futile. Insofar as these people think there is something to discuss, Al-Zawahiri's syllogism degrees, decrees that they must all be disbelievers. Now, it's pointless, I think, for those of us who are not Muslims to say what is real and what is ersatz Islam, just as it would be inane for al-Zawahiri to weigh in on whether, say, contraception or capital punishment is consistent with Christianity. It's up to those who want to sail under these flags, the flags of Christianity or Islam or Judaism, to determine and explain, if they wish to, what their banners mean. That's their fight. But among those who call themselves Muslims, there are more tolerant exponents, and there have been more tolerant times. We can observe the historical fact that there have been societies that call themselves Muslim, practice toleration, including in the very earliest period under the command of the Prophet himself. So it's heartening, at least for this cosmopolitan, that there are now many Muslim voices speaking for religious toleration, 
and arguing for it within the interpretive traditions of Islam. Now, I wasn't raised a Muslim, as the Muslims in this room will have gathered, but I was raised among Muslims. My sense of Islam, therefore, begins with family memories, and like so many childhood memories, the mise-en-scene is the dinner table. When I was a child, we often visited our Muslim cousins, the Safis, for dinner, and the food in the company was always something to look forward to, especially given my taste for food. But I look forward especially to the feasting at Eid, the feast that starts on the last day of Ramadan, once the sun is set. Ramadan is a month of day-long fasts. As they fast, Muslims recall the origins of the Quran, which they believe was given to the Prophet Muhammad by God, beginning in the ninth month of the Muslim calendar. Between sunrise and sunset, devout Muslims eat and drink nothing. Many will go to mosque to hear the Holy Quran being read. Then in the evening, they come together for a family meal to break the daily fast. On the last day of the month, in the festival of Eid, there is this last great feast, the climax of the celebration, the end of the month of fasting. There was hummus and tabbouleh, falafel and baba ganoush, kibber and lubia, followed by delicious sweet pastries, fresh fruit, and strong, dark, sweet coffee. I love the food. <laughs> if we'd been living in America, I suspect that at some point it would have seemed necessary to explain to the Christian cousins, that was us, the significance of Ramadan. But we were in Ghana, a country where Christians, Muslims, and the followers of traditional religions live side by side, accepting each other's different ways without expressing, it should be said, much curiosity about them. Auntie Grace, my aunt, who was married to my Muslim uncle, went to church on Sundays, even during Ramadan. Our cousins came to us at Christmas. I feasted in Ramadan throughout my childhood, but I learned what it meant only when I read about it as an adult. Muhammad himself, according to the Quran, had friendly relations with the Jews and Christians of Arabia, and when he fought them, it wasn't about religion. He seems to have thought of the Quran as a special revelation for the Arabs from the one God who had made the covenant with the children of Israel and sent Jesus to the Christians. The Quran says, Be courteous when you argue with the people of the book, which is what it calls uh, Christians, Jews, and uh, Zoroastrians, except with those among them that do evil. Say, we believe in that which has been revealed to you. Our God and your God are one. To him we submit. And it also says famously, there shall be no compulsion in religion, which sounds like a statement of the fundamental tenet of Protestantism. <laughs> not only the Quran, but the practice of the Prophet, as reported in the Hadith, the stories of the Prophet's life, does not require the conversion of the people of the book, as the Quran, as I say, calls Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians. Beginning in the 7th century of the Common Era, the early caliphs, Muhammad's successors as rulers of the Muslim Empire that exploded out of Arabia in the first century of Islam, took the largely Christian and Jewish communities they conquered under their protection without requiring conversion. In Persia, where they found not Jews or Christians but Zoroastrians, they extended the same courtesies to this other older tradition. When Akbar ruled his Muslim empire in North India, he practiced the sort of toleration of the local Indian traditions that the early caliphs had shown for the people of the book. Akbar built Hindu temples and encouraged dialogue among scholars of all religions, including Sikhs, Buddhists, and Jains, along with Jews, Zoroastrians, various sects of Christians, and indeed, various traditions of Islam. Now, I knew none of this, of course, when I was young. I only knew that my uncle Aviv was a devout Muslim and that he was also a tolerant and gentle man. 
He came from a country riven by religious divides. Among the Muslims in Lebanon, there are both Sunni and Shia communities, divided further among Alawites, Ismailis, Twelver Shias, and Druze. Among the Christians, there are Roman, Armenian, and Syrian Catholics, Greek, Armenian, and Syrian Orthodox, Chaldeans, Maronites, and, of course, a large number of Protestant denominations. Uncle Aviv seemed to be equally open to people of all these faiths. Perhaps that made him, by the standards of some of today's noisiest preachers of Islam, a bad Muslim. But I think it also made him quite typical of many Muslims in many countries and at many times. Indeed, my uncle would doubtless have felt that his form of Islam, being interwoven with the customs and practices he grew up with, was a richer, more sustaining faith than the thin abstractions of the rootless, individualistic zealots of neo-fundamentalism. But it's not for me to say. Still, though Muslims like him are less noisy than the zealots, it's safe to venture that they're also more numerous. Well, if cosmopolitanism is, in my slogan, universality plus difference, there is, as I said, the possibility of the other kind of enemy, the one I mentioned at the start, who rejects universality altogether. Not everybody matters would be their slogan. The fact is, though, that whatever may have been the case in the past, most people who say that now don't really believe it. Bernard Williams, the British philosopher who died recently, wrote in his wonderful book, Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy, that morality, in the sense of norms that are universally binding, is not an invention of philosophers. It's the outlook, or part of the outlook, of almost all of us. Part of what he meant is that most people believe they have certain obligations that are, to use his word, inescapable. And one such inescapable obligation is this. When you do something that harms someone else, you must be able to justify it. Those we think of as willing to claim that not everyone matters, Nazis, racists, chauvinists of one sort and another, don't stop with saying, these people don't matter. They tell you why. Jews are destroying our nation. Black people are inferior. Tutsi are cockroaches. The Aztecs are enemies of the faith. It's not that they don't matter. It's that they have earned our hatred or contempt. They deserve what we are doing to them. Now, I don't pretend that the reasons these people offer for ignoring the interests of strangers explain why people sometimes treat one another so badly. And of course, I plainly don't think that these explanations justify such bad behavior. But once you start offering reasons for ignoring the interests of others, reasoning itself draws you into a kind of universality. A reason is an offer of a ground for thinking or feeling or doing something. And it isn't a ground for me unless it's a ground for you. If someone really thinks that some group of people genuinely don't matter, he'll suppose that they're outside the circle of those to whom justifications are due. That's one reason it's easier to think that animals don't matter than it is to think that people don't matter because animals can't ask us why we're abusing them. Still, they have to have Peter Singer do it for them. Still, if people really do think that people don't matter at all, there's one thing to do. Try to change their minds, and if you fail, make sure that they can't put their ideas into action. The real challenge to cosmopolitanism isn't the belief that other people don't matter at all. It's the much more prevalent belief that they don't matter very much. 
It's easy to get agreement that we have some obligations to strangers in other places. We can't do terrible things to them. And perhaps if their situation becomes completely intolerable and we can do something about it at reasonable cost, we may even have a duty to intervene. Perhaps we should stop genocide. Perhaps we should intervene when there's mass starvation or a great natural disaster. But do we have to do any more than this? That's where the ascent begins to crumble. So what can we agree on? Charitable giving in the wake of the tsunami of uh, Christmas 2004 was remarkable and heartening. But two million people die every year of malaria. 240,000 people a month die of AIDS. 136,000 people died last month, most of them children, of diarrhea. Entirely treatable. And practical-minded economists like Jeffrey Sachs, for example, starting with real data, have made arguments that really concerted and well-orchestrated efforts to alleviate poverty in the third world have a good chance at success. They rebut the usual defeatist assumptions. Too many people, I think, are kind of reflex Malthusians. They're worried that if you save a hungry child, you're just creating another hungry adult down the road. But that depends on how you do it. If you save children by creating opportunities for their parents and raising overall affluence, then, history affirms, fertility rates ultimately decline. On the other hand, if you save the children by dumping free grain into the local community and putting the local farmers out of business, nobody can compete with free, you may indeed be doing more harm than good. U.S. government foreign aid was a little over $16 billion in 2003 to the rest of the world. American private assistance to low-income countries was about, well, it was at least, it's hard to calculate, but it was at least $6.5 billion in the same year. The American development budget is the largest in the world. But as a percentage of GDP, we're at the bottom of the affluent donor nations. Our budget is largest because we're richer. There's more of us. Many poor countries pay more in debt service to the United States than they receive in foreign aid from us. And in turn, much of that assistance simply takes the form of debt relief. Only a fraction of American foreign assistance is specifically targeted at helping the extremely poor. And these numbers, however, obscure other things, both for better and worse, that America does. For example, on the debit side, the United States tariffs cost the, say, the tsunami-affected countries, we, we, our tariffs cost them more in 2004, about $1.8 billion, than U.S. charity will enrich them. Though American trade policies, I should say, are generally better for the developing world than those of the European community or Japan. James Wolfenson, the former president of the World Bank, once pointed out that the average European cow lives on a $2.00 50 a day subsidy, while 3 billion people in the world live on under $2 a day. Europeans pay $2.50 to subsidize every cow in Europe. On the credit side, America admits many more immigrants than Japan and Europe, and these immigrants send back tens of billions in remittances, creating at least in principle a basis for capital and growth. On the debit side, once more, however, the United States is meeting many of its health needs, especially those of the poorest Americans, 
with a brain drain of doctors and nurses, trained usually at public expense from places like India, Pakistan, Ghana, Nigeria, and Jamaica, where they are desperately needed. So when you spend your dollars, isn't it worth also spending a moment or two to ask whether they're being spent intelligently? However much you give, doesn't it matter that it isn't being wasted? Part of the trouble with focusing simply on starving children is that it blocks thought about the complexity of the problems facing the global poor. Ask the people at Oxfam or UNICEF whether they think that all that matters is keeping children alive a month longer. The juxtaposition of Western affluence with third world poverty can sometimes lead activists to see the two as causally linked in some straightforward way, as if they are poor because we are rich. So it's worth remembering that poverty is far less prevalent today than it was a century ago, and that the growth of the rich economies is part of the explanation. Since 1950, life expectancy and literacy rates in the developing world have increased quite dramatically. In 1990, some 375 million people in China were living in what the World Bank calls extreme poverty, which is an income of less than $1 per day, which I imagine you would agree is pretty extreme. By, 200, by 2001, so 1990, 375 million. By 2001, that figure has declined in inflation-adjusted dollars by more than 160 million, even as the total population of China has continued to rise. The number of South Asians living in extreme poverty has declined by tens of millions. It's only Africa that's been left behind, and Africa presents the greatest challenge to our development experts and, I think, to our sense of our global obligations. In thinking about trade policies, immigration policies, aid policies, in deciding which industries to subsidize at home, which governments to support and arm abroad, politicians in the world's richest countries naturally respond most to the needs of those who elected them. But they should responding to their, be responding to their citizens' aspirations as well as their needs. And American attitudes towards foreign assistance are a complicated thing. In surveys, Americans are apt to say that we give too much foreign aid and propose that the amount be lowered to, say, 5% of the federal budget, which is actually 10 times as much as we spend. I don't know exactly what the basic obligations are of each American or of each human being. But a few years ago, the UN convened a summit meeting in Monterey, Mexico, in which leaders from all over discussed specific ways of alleviating the grinding poverty that afflicts one-sixth of the world's population, more than a billion people. Needless to say, the announced goals, which are called the Monterey Consensus, haven't been met. None of us expects that pronouncements from gatherings of politicians will produce uh, things that will be met. But it was a truly cosmopolitan conversation on a matter of central cosmopolitan concern. It's important that conversations like these continue. It's even more important that they don't just end with conversation. For if there are people without their basic entitlements, and we know there are billions of them, we know that collectively we are not meeting our obligations. Now, faced with impossible demands, we're likely to throw up our hands in horror. But the obligations we have are not monstrous or unreasonable. They don't require us to abandon our own lives. They entail clear-headedness, not heroic self-sacrifice. Suppose that Jeffrey Sachs were right, and that in 20 years, at a cost of 150 billion a year, we could eradicate extreme poverty throughout the planet. 
the poverty that kills people and empties lives of meaning. Well, that's less than 6% of the estimated 2005 budget of the United States, and our share of it would be about 2% of that budget. It's a lot of money, but it's about one-tenth of what's in the U.S. defense budget this year. Now, I don't know whether Jeff Sachs' number is right. I don't know whether his proposals are. But even if he's half right, the richest nations can together salvage the wasted lives of the poorest human beings by spending collectively about 45 cents a day for each citizen of the European Union, the United States, Canada, and Japan, which is, by the way, about a third of what the average Norwegian already pays in public and private aid. The average Norwegian is not three times richer than the average citizen of the industrialized world. So if we accept the cosmopolitan challenge, we'll tell our representatives that we want them to remember those strangers. Not because we're moved by their suffering, we may or may not be, but because we are responsive to what the great Enlightenment economist Adam Smith once called reason, principle, conscience, the inhabitant of the breast. You may or may not like strangers or their ways, but the very essence of morality requires that you should accept that we have a shared responsibility for the human fate. Say that just <laughs> before you start, I should say that you, the, this is your first, I guess, lecture by a Princeton professor uh, that's of the vaguely academic character. And uh, you should have noticed two things about it that will apply in future. One is that it started 10 minutes late. Um, and and um, well, I'll tell you what the other is when we finish the questions. Hello. Yes. Ooh, I get a microphone. Exciting. Um, the popular book, uh, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. I'd like to know your opinion about Thomas Friedman's uh, The World is Flat, because he discusses much of the same topics that you were talking about in terms of Islam and how they uh, feel basically economically regulate, you know, relegated, and that terrorism is their like, chance to escape and to assert themselves. And I wonder if you agree with him or what your general opinion of his thesis is? Um, I, I can't tell you exactly what, I mean, I haven't thought about that book. Uh, I, I looked at it briefly when it came out, but I haven't studied it. So I can't t give you a kind of disciplined account of it. I can say that I think it's extremely unlikely that he, that it seems to be extremely unlikely that his view is well characterized by saying that terrorism is a way out. Uh, uh, there are a few people who think that, but I don't think uh, that either he and certainly I think that that's the, the main view of most people in the, um, in the Muslim world, which after all stretches from Morocco to Indonesia. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, 
uh, not, I, I think those who think that part of the problem is a sense of historic disadvantage in the Muslim world, part of the problem we face and part of what generates the energy for terrorism, I think that's right. Um, uh, but many of the people who feel that are not going to respond by becoming terrorists. Uh, so uh, that doesn't explain why the particular people who do become terrorists do, because the vast majority of people who feel historically alienated in that way and who feel that, um, who remember that Islam was once uh, culturally dominant in the, in the Mediterranean world in the Near East and South Asia and it's not anymore, and who wonder what happened, how the Christians took over and so on. Uh, many of those people are puzzled, and I think one of their responses, one of the new responses as an alternative to the terrorist response is to try and think of ways of kind of re-energizing the Muslim world in a positive way, not in this negative way. But to try, after all, um, you know, one possible response to feeling behind is to try to catch up. <laughs> uh, another response is to shoot the guy in front of you. <laughs> uh, I think there are more people who would like to try and catch up and, and, and we have, of course, the people who want to shoot the guy in front of them are very significant, not because there's a large number of them, but because in the world of interdependence and massive technological complexity, it's pretty easy for a small group of dedicated people to do a lot of damage. Um, so there, as it were, our kind of society magnifies the harm that a small group can do. It should also be said, however, that our society also magnifies the amount of good that a small group can do. We can, for example, if you in this class committed yourself to working uh, as, a, as collectively uh, for uh, some project in Botswana or uh, Malawi or even Ghana, where I come from, uh, you could make a huge difference. Uh, just one class in one university in the United States could make a huge difference to the lives of tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people nowadays if you put your mind to it. Class of um, the class of uh, 1809 wasn't in a position to do that. It didn't have the connections. It didn't have the knowledge because there wasn't the f the flow of information that we now live with, uh, and there wasn't the profound uh, interdependence in terms of the economy um, uh, that there is today. I mean, I, I is there go ahead. Another, I, I know Thomas Friedman. His ultimate salute or his solution was to support liberal thinkers yes. uh, within, within the society. He yes. thinks that the society there must elevate itself, yes. that it can't be totally outside-driven, yes. you can't just poke them. Right, I think that's do, completely right. And, and to do good things. Um, so you can, you can both help, uh, but the moment somebody uh, within a, a country, uh, another country, is seen as simply, as it were, reflecting an American conception of the world, or a Christian conception, or a Western conception, then essentially they're taking themselves out of the local conversation. So it's very, we can actually damage people <laughs> by associating too much with them. That's just a fact. So you have to be, these, these, these conversations and the support for the, 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 the intellectuals in these societies that, who are doing the things that seem eminently worth doing, um, has to be done in a, in a sort of nuanced and subtle way. And I think that, the, and this is the cosmopolitan thought, that when we engage uh, in conversation with, say, on the head of Al-Azhar, 
the, the, the head of cleric of the oldest university was in university in the world. Um, we do so not just to tell him things, but also to listen to him, to see what he has to say, to see whether we have things to learn. And um, that's what a conversation is. Uh, uh, a conversation is different from lecturing. <laughs> and we do uh, professors lecture all the time. We get used to it. Uh, but we can't be in lecture mode if we're trying to engage seriously with people in other societies all the time. We have also to be in student mode and in listening mode. to believe in what you believe if you are accepting their difference? What, how do you get them to uh, agree that our common morality is to uh, uh, share and uh, support every human's fate? Um, I mean, you say you can't, we don't, if you support universal, universality and difference, are you not, it seems like a cosmopolitan is also trying to become, get everybody else to be a cosmopolitan or then you're eliminating difference. So I'm just wondering how you resolve that, that issue. Okay, there, there are two different questions. The answer to the question about um, how we engage in the process of suasion is conversation. And that means not just talking, as I said, but listening. Uh, people won't uh, be persuaded by somebody who just comes and tells them stuff. They, they might be persuaded by someone who comes and talks. And you should expect that you will be changed too. You're just another human being from another society. We don't have everything right. God knows. Uh, so we should expect to be... So that's part of the answer. Now, as far as... Um, there's a kind of cosmopolitanism, which is a kind of uh, taste for difference, that I don't think cosmopolitans uh, wish everybody to join in on. The minimum we ask of everybody is, of the, is the moral minimum, the requirement that you don't abuse uh, people, uh, you don't harm people from outside your group, and that you uh, collaborate in the, in the world system to make sure that everybody gets those basic minima that they're entitled to. But uh, in, in the larger argument, which is a tiny part in the book, Cosmopolitanism, which will be coming out next January, um, <laughs> Uh, it'll be, you know, 1695 on Amazon. Um, <laughs> it's already available. You can pre-order. Um, uh, one of the things I say is that, for example, it's not part of the cosmopolitan agenda to make the Amish stop being Amish, to come out and, and you know... In, uh, I do not want to persuade the Amish that they should really have um, iPods and listen to world music. <laughs> right? They don't want iPods. They don't want electricity. They don't want telephones. They certainly don't want world music. Right? That's fine by me. But they have obligations, which they know because they're serious Christian folk, uh, which they should acknowledge. And, uh, and we should acknowledge their... Now, I think even people have the right... Remember, conversation, again, is something you offer people. There are people who don't want to talk. Right? The Amish don't actually want to talk to me. Right? They don't want people with my kind of weird uh, views and background coming and um, corrupting them. And I'm not going to force myself on them. I don't think I should. Um, so uh, um, I think my own view is that cosmopolitans 
don't want everybody to be cosmopolitan. We do want everybody to recognize the basic common morality. But that's consistent with living very different kinds of lives. Um, I would say that on the, at the basic level, most Americans, for example, most citizens of the United States, share large parts of the basic common morality. But some of them live in Greenwich Village, and some of them live in Ames, Iowa, and some of them live in Montana, and some of them live in Louisiana. And in those places, some people live very differently from the ways that other people live, and that's fine. So you believe in differences, but also with an exception for a morality, a common morality. Yeah, which we have to negotiate. We have to, we have to talk to one another about what we think's in it, and we have to respect the fact that at the beginning of the conversation, there are serious disagreements. So we are, as a global cosmopolitan, you would believe that there are certain people who have differences, who say, want to, who don't share, say, what your view of common morality, such as the terrorist groups, extreme yeah. fundamentalists. Yeah. How do we, what is your plan, what do you plan well, to do with that? Uh, it depends what they're trying to do. Say, if they're trying uh, to blow me up, my plan is to try and stop them. Uh, if they're trying to harm other people who, they should, who deserve protection, my plan is to try and help those people be uh, protected. Um, so even though, even though that's a difference that they share, they have a difference from you. And so that's somewhat against like the whole oh, difference in that, general. That, correct. I only slipped in occasionally. Legitimate difference, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is not my view that difference itself is valuable. My view is a different view. My view is that there are many different things worth valuing. Mm. But, not, but there are lots of kind of difference. I'm not in favor of, of, of encouraging Nazism. I don't think the, the, the Aryan nation is a society that deserves subsidy from the state of New Jersey uh, or anybody else. And, I, and if you're planning to join it, I'd like to talk to you and persuade you not to. So, there, there are, but, so it's just that what we, what we think the sort of philosophical view is there are many, many values worth living by, and nobody can live by all of them. So it's natural that different groups of people will make different values central in their lives, and that's fine. What's not fine is organizing your life around something that's not a value at all, that's bad, like Nazism. Sorry, so that's very helpful. So this, I'm not, I don't value difference as such. The argument is, there are many things worth valuing. You can't value all of them in one life, so people should be allowed to make their choices about which ones they value. Society should be allowed to. And as long as the values that you're living by are among the permissible values, and that's a topic of conversation. That's a topic where I don't think I have all the answers. I don't know exactly what all the values are that make sense. Right? And I'm, and I'm open to hearing from other people in part because I might learn something about values uh, that I don't know. And I can... I know there's a lot that I don't know about values, but I have some fairly firm ideas, which it would be hard to dissuade me of. But even about those, I'm willing to have conversation. What I'm not willing to do is to let people harm other people in, in their difference. So, yeah. So there's a difference between... So that's why I said toleration, but a recognition that some things are intolerable. Um, I should... Take somebody on the stage if there is somebody. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Um, in yeah. your essay, you seem to pointedly denounce imperialism, which is great, cosmopolis, world state. But what about 
um, military interventionism. I mean, your definition of cosmopolitanism in your essay seemed, I may get this wrong, to undermine sovereign governments. And some in this country, many actually, believe the U.S. has a right to, or any country in the first world, has a right to overthrow gangster dictators. So, I mean, how far is too far in the political scheme to push the world towards, you know, what we mm -hmm. see as mm -hmm. progress? Well, um, I think people, I think um, it's easiest to think about these things in concrete cases. Um, so, for example, uh, it seems to me that everybody, including us, the United States, should have done more about the Rwandan genocide than we did. We should have intervened. We could have intervened. At each stage, there were things we could have done that we didn't do. And even President Clinton, who was in charge at the time, now admits that, that mistakes were made, uh, which I think is an understatement. Um, so uh, I'm not against uh, intervention as such. But I'm not in favor of uh, intervention as such either. I think you have to look and see what the costs and benefits are, and whether, in particular, what you're seeking to in impose or enforce is uh, one of the fundamental elements of the core morality or just some particular thing that you care about and which they're entitled to have a different view about. Where those boundaries are, I think, in practice, should be decided in part by this cross-cultural conversation. Um, so, again, a particular example, that one of the most contentious sets of issues in the world today has to do with what pressure we should put on other governments, not on terrible, ghastly dictators like Mobutu, who we should just, you know, we shouldn't support, certainly, which we did, but we should also seek to get rid of. Though, again, you know, you have to be prudent. It's one thing to get rid of a dictator. It's another thing to make things better in the country. And uh, if you're going to intervene, you have to intervene intelligently and with a plan for uh, making lives actually better. Once you intervene in the lives of other people politically, you uh, acquire responsibilities for their fate because you took responsibility. Um, this, is, this is a principle that uh, uh, General Powell ascribed to Pottery Barn. Right? He said, if you break it, it's yours. Um, so if you intervene, you have to be willing to intervene responsibly. You have to make things better. It's not enough just to say, well, we went in with good intentions. It's not enough to say, oh, just we were, uh, you know, we were trying to make things better. You have to be intelligent as well. But certainly, we have responsibilities. If you have, with power comes responsibility. I think it is sometimes appropriate uh, to intervene. Imperialism wasn't mostly guided by the thought of improving the condition of the subject peoples. So it's different. Humanitarian intervention is not the same thing as imperialism. Uh, there's somebody at the remotest, furthest back there. Yes, why not? Okay, uh, two small questions. Um, in discussing the differences between... In discussing the differences between... Are you planning between... to elect him president of the class already? In discussing the differences between cosmopolitanism and counter-cosmopolitanism, -cosmo you mentioned uh, that Christian denominations fell under the, um, the segment of counter-cosmopolitanism. Do you think that that exists um, throughout the 
the spectrum. Um, so that's my first question. The second question is, um, do you see any and all counter cosmopolitanism groups as um, having a positive or negative role in developing uh, what you called the common morality? Um, I didn't say, and I don't think, that uh, all Christian groups are counter-cosmopolitan. That, that's not my, that's not okay, my view. Okay, I just wanted clarification. Uh, I, I think there are, uh, are counter-cosmopolitan forms of uh, all the world's major religions. There's, there's, a, there's a currently a kind of uh, deeply anti-cosmopolitan form of Hindu uh, fundamentalism developing in South Asia, for example. Uh, and there are clearly deeply counter-cosmopolitan forms of, um, of, of, of uh, Judaism. So, um, but, so I do think there are counter-cosmopolitanism in all these sects, in all these different religious groups, but I don't think that any of them is intrinsically counter-cosmopolitan. In, indeed, I began by quoting a famous religious figure, St. Paul, stating what, in some ways, seems to me the essence of uh, a certain kind of cosmopolitan view. Um, what was the second question? Uh, the second question dealt with developing uh, the common morality. Oh, well, and, again, yeah. you know, again, I mean, the, uh, the common morality, the sense that we're all responsible for one another and so on, uh, in the real world, in most places, that comes out of religious traditions. Uh, the, the great exception to that, interestingly, I think, is, is, is China, where, where it comes out of the philosophical tradition, and Confucius. Uh, as well as from a religious tradition. But in most of the world, the, the idea that everybody matters, that we're responsible for one another, the golden rule in some version, comes from religious tradition. So, of course, uh, religious traditions are central to, um, to the conversation about the common morality. Absolutely. Must be. Thank you. Um, looking for... Uh, I don't know how to put this politely, but is there a woman who'd like to say something? <laughs> yes. Okay, you, and then you. Hi. Hello. Um, I had a question regarding, you stated that various fundamental uh, groups have developed. My question is, how do these groups come about, and how would one create a society which deters that type of behavior, or would trying to deter that kind of behavior would be imposing our own form of... Uh, like counter pluralism. Well, I think um, uh, it's not the fundamentalist character of it; it's the actual content of it that that can be the problem. Um, some forms of fundamentalism are lead to withdrawal from the world and leaving other people alone, and that's like the Amish. I mean, they're not fundamentalists. Well, they are sort of. We don't call them <laughs> fundamentalists because they've been doing it for so long. But <laughs> but but if they started doing it now, we'd call them fundamentalists. Um, so, uh, and I, that seems to me a perfectly acceptable form of difference. I think they're entitled to, to close them off. Uh, there are complicated questions about what rights they have in relation to keeping their children from leaving in a liberal society. I mean, I think that um, my own view is that in our kind of liberal society, um, if you don't have the right to, as it were, force your children to stay. And by the way, the Amish don't think that they have that right either. They have this practice, which I'm sure you all know about because it's rather fun. Um, <laughs> called Rumspringen, which means that when you're about 16 or 17, you get told, go and do what you like. And when you've decided that you want to commit yourself to the church, come back. And that's the moment at which many Amish kids become heroin addicts and so on. And uh, <laughs> It's true. 
not making it up. If you, there's a very great documentary about this called The Devil's Playground. Um, so so the, the, the Amish share my view, <laughs> though they'd like their children to stay. Um, so uh, now when the, the problem arises when people want to impose on others things that uh, it doesn't seem reasonable to impose on people against their will. How you make that argument depends entirely on the details of the religious tradition. Uh, this country, the political institutions of this country were, were essentially constructed by Protestants. Protestants think that individual conscience should be sovereign, so it's not too hard to persuade Protestants that there's not much point in forcing people to do what's right, because it's only any good if they do it because they think it's right, right? That's the Protestant idea. That's what the Reformation was about. Uh, so in a, in a Protestant country, it should be easier than it actually is. It should be easier to persuade people of that. Uh, if, if the religious tradition you're discussing with is a different kind of religious tradition, uh, it's true, for example, in the Muslim case, that um, the, uh, the relationship between the state and the individual in traditional Muslim thinking is different from that in, in Protestant thinking. And so the arguments have to be different. And they're being made within that framework by uh, people like uh, El Fadl, uh, are making arguments for toleration within Muslim Muslim frame. And in doing that, they're inevitably shaped by their interactions with non-Muslims. I mean, he's a Yale professor, so of course he's going to be shaped by his interaction with non-Muslims. To start again, so that everybody can hear. Okay. If you can discriminate in cosmopolitanism, which, um, which things matter, which ideas are worth upholding, how does that differ from other institutions or other philosophies discriminating between which ideas matter? Well, we, we have a different picture from some of them. Their picture is, uh, there's a version of this in the Western tradition in, say, in Aristotle. Their picture is, there's a best way for each person to be. It's set by our nature, and you should, each person should seek that. That's not the view that lies behind the cosmopolitan picture. What lies behind the cosmopolitan picture is an idea, first, that there's a very diverse range of ways in which human beings can live good lives. So there isn't just one best life for everybody. And second, that important elements of what it is for your life to be good are to be decided by you. You have choices to make. Um, so, just to, to, to pick an obviously ridiculous example, if somebody said, I've looked at the lives of uh, Zula and Jane Austen, and I've decided that really the best life for a human being is the life of a novelist, right? So I want, you know, I'm going to preach that. I'm going to make everybody believe in being a novelist. I can try and make everybody be a novelist. I'm going to have laws against not being prepared to be a novelist and so on. Uh, such a person um, would then be, in essence, saying there's only one sort of form of the human good. Of course, that's not right. What's right is that being a novelist is something worth doing and that one of the things that makes it worth doing is that you want to do it, that you choose to do it. Another thing that makes it worth doing is that you have the talent and the capacity. Uh, so sometimes people have ambitions, things they want to do in their life, that it's absurd for them to have because they don't have the necessary tools. If I had the ambition to be king of England, 
which you will be glad to hear I do know. Uh, it would be preposterous. And my friends would say to me, that's a stupid ambition for you to have because you don't have the right ancestry. You don't have the connections. And the only way you get to be king of England is, roughly speaking, if most of the English were dead. Uh, and then it wouldn't be fun to be king of England. So, um, so we can have unrealistic ambitions. But within a broad range, taking an account of what... So I, it would be unrealistic for me to want to be a great basketball player. Um, I'm taller than some great basketball players, so I'm tall enough. But if you've ever seen me on a basketball play, uh, field, you'll understand why it's unrealistic of me to want to be a great basketball player. So people have... Pe people's, uh, the view is that people everywhere on the planet are entitled in part to decide for themselves what matters in their lives, that it isn't up to anybody else to do it. And that's different from certain views of the human good, which, which say there's a best life for everybody, and we're going to organize politics and society to make sure the maximum number of people live that very good life. That make sense? Ma'am. Cosmopolitanism, because their view of what is tolerable behavior for their governments themselves is so strict, even though they are providing like neo-globalization, you know, situations where they would rather their own people's values be taken more seriously. So that was kind of mangled. It was much better in my head. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine, except that I don't know about, about this organization to tell you what I think about it. Just groups in general that are for better respect uh, by their governments and foreign governments for the people that actually live in those areas? Well, you know, as I said, I think one way of stating the core cosmopolitan idea is everybody matters. So, uh, on the whole, people who are in the business of trying to make sure that all the governments in the world take proper care to respect the fact that their citizens matter are on the cosmopolitan side. So how, I, I'm wondering how you would worry, I mean, why should I worry about them? Well, they have necessarily usually a very prescribed sense of what it means to be cosmopolitan. Okay, well, okay. That's a bad idea. I think that my picture is this. We all come to a conversation. We, all we have dialogue. Societies have dialogue across societies. People have dialogues within societies. In those conversations, uh, people work out together the things they can agree about and the things they can't. There's a practical element to this, right? So, for example, there are now many international law treaties that regulate all kinds of things. Uh, we, we, we all have a right to clean water. Uh, under a UN <coughs> treaty. Do I think that clean water is in fact a fundamental human right? No. But there it is. We got everybody to agree to it. We're trying to do something about it. It's certainly a very good thing if everybody has clean water. So I'm not going to fuss about the intellectual foundations. I'm not going to say, look, um, you can give them clean water as long as you don't tell me that it's a right. I don't care. If you're doing the right thing, I don't really want to fuss too much about what the argument is. Um, so, I'm not interested, I mean, if you're in real political life, it seems to me not a good idea to be a purist about theoretical matters. Well, 
in the end, what matters is that everybody matters and that we do the best we can to make sure that everybody gets a decent shot at a decent life. It is not a requirement of contributing to that that you have a great theory about what a decent life is. Right? So it's, the, the, the fundamental impulse is practical, not theoretical. The fundamental impulse is to try and make, take responsibility with your fellows for the fate of all of us. And I imagine that they would agree with that. They may have, um, they may be kind of purists about exactly what that entails, and I might find myself opposing them, in part on the grounds that it seems to me that in practice what works best is for people to speak from within their own tradition and to listen to what the ways people articulate their own needs rather than announcing to them that they need this, that, and the other, and that therefore they should uh, agree with you that their government should give it to them. Um, well, this is not a feature of most uh, lectures, which is that they, they go on um, beyond the advertised time, uh, <laughs> nor is it a feature, at least of most of mine, that there are still people left who uh, haven't had a chance to answer questions. But um, I'm, I'm going to stand around here if you want to come talk to me for a, for a while. And in the meanwhile, I want to thank you all very much and to welcome you again. to invite you to come to some of my classes. Thank you all. I'm so glad you have so much to think about. You know now to go back to your residential colleges and you can continue the discussion. Professor Appear is going to hang out in the lobby for a little while, okay, if you have a pressing question. Thanks. <laughs>